Oh, well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Thankful to be here this morning. I'd like to thank the session for allowing me to be in the pulpit. It's an incredible opportunity that I have to preach uh, the word of the Lord today, so I, I want to thank them for allowing me to be here with you all this morning. So we're going to be studying Psalm 17, and as we turn our attention to God's word, let's turn our Bibles there. If you have a pew Bible, I believe that's page 454. Uh, and this summer, we're continuing our study of the Psalms. We studied the Psalms last summer, so we're trudging through these again this summer. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 17, which is a prayer of David. And although the Psalter is often referred to as the prayer book of the Bible, there are, in fact, only five Psalms, believe it or not, that were composed as prayers. Psalm 17, Psalm 86, and Psalm 142 are all by David. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God which contains one of my favorite verses, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. And lastly, the anonymous Psalm 102. Thus, Psalm 17 is indeed a prayer of David, a prayer by David. Many commentators believe that it was written not after but during a time of trouble, and that likely this is the David from 1 Samuel 23 through 26. If that is the case, it would make sense since Psalm 17 comes after Psalm 16, and as we saw last week, that the Lord is David's inheritance, that we can then imagine that David has learned this the hard way after he left his family home, running from King Saul. And as he came into a close brush of death, we also learned last week that the Lord is David's rescuer. So let's dive in. Psalm 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have proposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide in me the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord. For men of this world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to the infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is God's word. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you again for gathering us here today, Lord, in your name to worship you and your risen Son. I pray now, Lord, uh, that by your grace, uh, your word uh, continues to flow through our hearts, Lord. Open our hearts, open our minds uh, to what we study here this morning, Lord. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So James Boyce wrote of Psalm 17 in his commentary of the Psalms. As we begin to study Psalm 17, I want to suggest that it is a model prayer. It's urgent, perceptive, moving, but most of all, it models prayer by the way the psalmist uses arguments to make his appeal to God. He does not merely ask what he wants or needs. He argues his case, explaining to God why God should answer, 
not because God needs to be persuaded to help his children. He does not. But, he, but because arguments force us to carefully think through what we are asking and to sharpen our requests. So this morning, we're going to be examining our text using these three points, okay? Point one, hear, O Lord. Point two, show, O Lord. And point three, arise, O Lord. So we call out to God to examine us first. And that's our first point. Hear, O Lord. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. So David begins with a plea to be heard. Like a lawyer who lays out his case before a judge, David is developing his argument before the judge of the universe, the only judge that counts. Shema, the Hebrew word for hear. Hear, O Lord, give me a fair hearing. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. David's saying, listen to me, O Lord. Declare me not guilty, O Lord. Vindicate me. Let your eyes behold the right, O Lord. See the truth here, Lord. Now, if we look back to Psalm 15, verses 2 and 3, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, as well as Psalm 16, verses 1 and 2, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. What we can see here is that David's record of a godly life has already been established. So here in Psalm 17, he's arguing in these verses 3 through 5 for his own integrity. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You've tested me, and you will find nothing. I have proposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man... By the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. So David's entered his formal plea, and he's saying before the Lord, I am not guilty. Pleading that God has tried his heart, tested him as a man, and that God will find nothing that David is guilty of doing. He has purposed or is determined to avoid the sinful ways of evil man. So in Psalm 16:11, David wrote, You make known to me the path of life. David's insisting that his walk matches his talk. And when I read that, I immediately thought of the fawns. His walk matches his talk, does it not? As for David, though, his words, his thoughts, his deeds, they're all on the same page. Does it not sound a little like Colossians 3, verse 17? And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God for the Father, giving thanks to God the Father through him, And here in verse 5, David is reinforcing that his feet are still walking along that same path made known to him by the Lord by praying that the Lord delivers him from his enemies. So yet it's possible, though, that you might have read verses 3 through 5 and came away questioning David's language. Boy, does that David sound self-righteous. Is he doing? Oh, no. Is he saying he's perfect? I, too, as I sat down to read this this week, I initially thought, I came away thinking, LOL, David, he's doing it again. This is what he does. It's so classic, right? He's saying all these things, and our immediate thought, because of our sinful cynicism, is David's insisting his own self-righteousness. But, well, it does come across that way, and if you didn't get to that point, good for you, because I definitely did. That's simply not what David is saying here. A.C. Leopold explains what David's saying while he wrote, As to the note of self-righteousness charged against the writer, this is nothing more than the claim. I am not guilty of the things with which I'm charged. Besides, I have sought to live a blameless life and am not charged with insincerity. If this claim is maintained rather stoutly, Leopold continued, it should not be overlooked 
that the writer had apparently been slandered rather viciously. Such an attack naturally caused for an indignant disavowal. Okay, so we have to remember that David's arguing his case here before his covenant-keeping God. David knows that God knows both his heart as well as his manner of life. So rather than take the high road of humility, David speaks the truth to the only judge and jury that matters, trusting that God knows his innocence and therefore will judge rightly. So Del Ralph Davis says also about this passage, David is not claiming sinlessness by steadfastness. He's not boasting of his own perfection, but arguing for his consistency. He's saying that he has been loyal, not impeccable. Such consistency is important in its own right. The Say Hey Kids, some of you might have heard of him. His name's Willie Mays. He was an all-star center fielder for the New York and later San Francisco Giants in the 1950s and 60s. During part of his Hall of Fame baseball career, he played under a manager who was a professing Christian, one who was often verbal about his faith. This manager was a bit of an oddity, though, during this time because he didn't indulge in liquor or tobacco. But his team knew that he, a married man, was actually carrying on an affair with an airline flight attendant. Willie Mays later said that not only did that manager not win anyone to his faith, but no one took him seriously when he would talk about being a Christian. And they thought consistency by someone professing faith in Christ, that was crucial. So that's the working assumption we're using here this morning as well. It's easy for David to cry for help to the Lord. But when praying to the Lord, as Psalm 66, 18 reads, If I cherished inequity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Our prayers must come from a life marked with faithfulness to the Lord. Thus, David in these verses is not saying he's perfect. Far from it. Rather, he's, he's examining himself so that he can confidently bring his prayers, bring his pleas, his cries before a Lord who's now listening. His ears open to David. So with full confidence, David now expects for the Lord to hear and thus respond to him, which is our second point of this morning. Show, O Lord. Hear, O Lord. Show, O Lord. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Having gained the ear of God, David now turns to his actual request for God's protection from those who were trying to attack him, from those who were trying to destroy him. Look immediately at verse 6. For you will answer me. There's an exclamation mark there. Why? Why does God answer David? Why does David think God will answer him? Because of God's steadfast love. Chesed. That's the Hebrew. Chesed. It's a covenant love. It's a promised love. It's a loyalty. God's loyalty to his son, David. 2 Samuel chapter 7 Verses 8 through 13 reads this. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over, over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, you and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne 
of his kingdom forever. I know that was a long text to read up here, but the point being there, right, is that we see this is why. This is why David can say, hear me, O Lord. Remember that time you made a covenant promise to me to cut off all my enemies, to protect me, to establish my throne forever. To me, I read this and I thought this is the ultimate pinky promise, right? I imagine David here saying to the Lord, a promise is a promise. So I'm going to call you on this. Drawing off of that covenant promise, David asks God to protect him because he's God's favorite. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me. David's boldness in calling God puts the closeness of their relationship on display. The apple of your eye, the shadow of your wings. These expressions were used in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 10 and 11, and depict the Lord's care for Israel in the wilderness. And here David's applying these truths to himself as Israel's king. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. Have you ever gotten so close to a mirror that you see a tiny image of yourself reflected in your eyeball in the mirror? Has anyone ever done that? I definitely have. So when God looks at David, though, and here's my point, when God looks at David, or you, or me, the believer for that matter, he sees a reflection of his son, the apple of his eye, because David was a type of Christ. You and I, we are type in Christ, right? We are found in Christ. Galatians 2.20 reads, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. David knew that God protected Israel in the wilderness and asks God now to repeat history in his case. They close their hearts to pity. With their mouths, they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He's like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. So David's now contrasting himself to his enemies. They're pitiless, they're arrogant, they're violent. These men, right? And what we see here with this language is there's a severe urgency. And it ties back to verses 6 through 9. And this is why I need your help, God. Did you hear that those people are like lions, eager to tear? I don't know if that sounds urgent to you, but if a lion's coming at me and wants to tear me apart, I'm done. That's what's going to happen. So I imagine David's witness planet Earth firsthand, okay? And a young lion lurking into ambush is not threat level 8, 9, it's threat level 10. And David is the wildebeest here. And we all know how that story ends. And he's desperate. His enemies have him surrounded. So here there's a sound basis for a prayer appeal. Because David knows that he's the apple of God's eye. And his heart is intent, as the record shows, as it's shown... In serving him and him alone. We see something similar in the book of 1 Timothy. Paul, facing death, his ministry seemingly coming to an end, the abandonment by most of his friends due to their own fear of persecution by simply being friends with Paul, writes to his beloved friend Timothy, encouraging him by reminding him that the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and that all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. So my question to you all this morning is, do you have any lions in your life? 
And I know it sounds like a silly question. When I wrote that down, I was like, that does actually sound pretty silly. But think about it. Do you have any lions in your life? I don't mean those seeking to attack you while you're down at the watering hole. We, in our own ways, though, we all in our own ways have these things that might not keep you up at night, but they might make it hard to fall asleep, right? They cause you the most subtle bit of distress or worry on a daily basis. They distract you and they take you away from being fully present and fully engaged with your friends, your children, your grandchildren, your coworkers, the loved ones, right, that you have and hold near to you in your life. These are the kind of things that take you away from fully engaging with those people, And you worry about it more than you'd like to admit. So whatever your lions are sidetracking you from enjoying the present, remember that the world is not your safari, and you are not the hunter. Satan has already defeated, Satan has already been defeated, and the hand of God is so much nearer to oppose and restrain the world and the wild beasts that live in it, and those wild beasts that are in our lives. So we come to our last point this morning. And make no mistake about it, David is asking God to choose sides between those justified by grace and those pitted against God. So point three, arise, O Lord. Okay, hear, O Lord. Show, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Confront him. Subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their wombs with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. So David now is calling on God for action. Confront him. Subdue him. Right, it's possible David can see one of his opponents here, as, as him is referred to twice, and the Hebrew in this verse for wicked is singular. But in verse 14, his enemies take in others, as David speaks of men, men of the world. Either way, that which is wicked without repentance will be dealt with accordingly, rest assured. So this, wic- this wickedness being dealt with, right, not by David, but by the only one who has the right to do it. That's the Lord himself. What's clear here is that the psalmist prays for God to act against the wicked and to therefore rescue him. Del Ralph Davis here says of verse 14, I think it's better to take all of verse 14 as descriptive of David's enemies. They are men of this age. Their portion is in this life. And they are men who have been on the receiving end of the goodness of God. He, ha- he has, for instance, given them families, and they have estates that they can pass on to their children. They may not see beyond their own portfolio, but actually, they have been bountifully blessed by what we call the common grace of God. They, though, are trying to annihilate God's servants. Luke 16.25 provides a fitting caption for their lives. Remember, that in your lifetime you received your good things. But unlike his adversaries, David's heart is not concerned with earthly wealth. Rather, David's heart is set on righteousness. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David's closing argument, it's personal, it's intimate. He secured his verdict and received his vindication. Vindication in this world, resurrection, in the next world. Contrasting himself to the people of this world in verse 14, the Hebrew and Old Testament parallels point to David, indicating beyond this age when he awakes. Some commentators translate the latter half of this verse, I will be satisfied with seeing your form. So when taken this way, it reminds us of Moses and of Miriam and of Aaron, 
In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron were aggravated, as many older siblings are, of their younger sibling, their younger brother Moses. They were frustrated that the Lord had spoken to them and not through Moses alone. The Lord eventually says that essentially there was no one like Moses for either responsibility or privilege. That Moses was in a class all by himself. That when he speaks through Moses, the Lord, when the Lord speaks through Moses, he doesn't use visions or dreams, his usual way of communicating with the prophets. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses beholds the form of the Lord. When what we see is that no one enjoyed the same level of intimacy and clarity as Moses, the mediator did. So Moses looked on to the form of the Lord. And it's possible that here in Psalm 17, David's words are like a sequel of Moses' experience in Numbers 12.8. David can't wait to enjoy the same premier intimacy and familiar friendship with the Lord that none other Moses up to this point had ever experienced, had previously enjoyed. In verse 14, he said that his adversaries were satisfied with children, but David knows what solid satisfaction is. And to him, that's seeing the face and the form of God. So when we come to verse 15, we, you and I, are now standing on holy ground where Jesus' people have often rested their hope. Matthew 5.8 tells us, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The wicked will be forced to bow down and will be destroyed, whereas the godly will enjoy God's presence and righteousness. The Hebrew Sadek I've done a lot of Hebrew this morning. This is kind of fun, though. The Hebrew, right? Sedek, righteousness, has the sense of victory and joy procured by the Lord and shared with His beloved. That is you and I. The godly will be satisfied with the likeness of God. No more threats will come from those who are like a lion because the lion's likeness will be exchanged for God's likeness. The Apostle John in Revelation 22, verse 4, applies this experience to the new era. The post-resurrection world where all of God's people will see His face. So this present life, today even, may be filled with testings of our hearts at night. By lions eager to tear. But the newness of life when we awake will bring the rewards of vindication and glorification. For God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So let us remember as we leave here this morning. The future fulfillment that we have in Christ does not exclude a sense of present enjoyment. The future fulfillment that we have in Christ does not exclude a sense of present enjoyment. So what are the lions in your life? What are those things preventing you from present enjoyment? Use Psalm 17 as a template for prayer. Pray through Psalm 17. And remind yourselves, right, as you read, that God is a just judge because He is a holy God. He sees our hearts. And He knows our ways. If you're here this morning having yet to surrender your life to Christ, let me encourage you to take your, your burdens and your guilt and place it before the Lord. Surrender your life to Him. Galatians 4, 4, 5 reads, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We call on the Lord as children of adoption, as heirs of Christ, right? Co-heirs with Christ. And because of the blood of Christ, we can bring our troubles to Him and say, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Hear a just cause, O Lord.
Harry Ironside, in his study of the Psalms, said that there were three verses that he likes to link together. Psalm 18.30, which reads, As for God, His ways, His way is perfect. Psalm 103, verse 15 reads, As for man, his days are like grass. And Psalm 17.15 reads, As for me, and this is the KJV, I shall behold thy face in righteousness. You see, Psalm 18.30 teaches us that no matter what comes into our lives, sickness, marital issues, financial problems, Wi-Fi outages, whatever it is, God makes no mistakes. I promise you, if the Wi-Fi is down, it's coming back up. His ways with us are flawless. They are, as the verse says, perfect. But man, well, David, in effect, says in Psalm 103, as for man... Like the McFlurry machine at McDonald's, I don't expect much from man. His days are like grass. Think about that. Thus, as for me, my trust is in the Lord my God, and I will behold His face in righteousness. And when I awake from the sleep of death, I shall be satisfied with His likeness. Hear, O Lord. Show, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for bringing us here this morning, Lord. Thank you for allowing us to gather together here, Lord, in the church that you have given to us in Huntsville, Alabama, Lord. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, for the blood that was shed on the cross, Lord, so that we can be reconciled with you, and Lord, we can share in your likeness through your son, Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.